0: Hi, my name's Andrew Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor and you are listening to episode 14 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. In this episode, we're continuing our series on characterization, and today I want to talk about the importance of showing who your characters are through their actions. When you present a character to your readers, you have two options. Option one is to tell the reader about your character. So, for example, you might say, Fred has a short temper. He gets angry at the slightest thing. Or you could say, Ellen is a sweet-natured person. She's always thinking of others. In their heads, your readers will understand what you're saying, but that understanding will be at an abstract intellectual level. They won't really know who your characters are. That's option one. Option two is about showing rather than telling. So rather than telling your readers that Fred has a short temper, you show Fred having an argument in the grocery store as part of the story. Or when you're talking about Ellen, you show her listening to the concerns of others, even when she has a load of her own worries. When you show your readers who your character is through their actions, they will start to believe in your characters with their hearts as well as their heads. This means that the reader should not just see your character thinking about something, but actually doing something. And I've got a number of examples to illustrate the point. First of all, we'll look at an example where the protagonist changes their character radically during the story. In this case, we need a lot of action-based evidence of what's going on because we have to get to know the character as they were and then we have to get to know them as what they become. This example is from Charles Dickens' book A Christmas Carol. The central character, Ebenezer Scrooge, is initially presented as a miserable, stingy, grumpy person who pours scorn on the festive season. But after he is visited by the ghost of his former business partner and three more spirits, each of whom presents some home truths to him about his miserliness, he mends his ways and becomes joyful and generous. So first, let's see how Scrooge acts in the early part of the story. I want to read you two passages to show this. The story starts on Christmas Eve in Scrooge's dingy office. Two people turn up asking if he would be prepared to help the poor with a contribution towards a charitable fund. Like all of the passages I'm using today, this one has been abridged. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe, said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr Scrooge or Mr Marley? Mr Marley has been dead these seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman, presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word, liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. "'At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge,' said the gentleman, taking up a pen, "'it's more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time.' "'Are there no prisons?' asked Scrooge. "'Plenty of prisons,' said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. "'And the union workhouses?' demanded Scrooge. "'Are they still in operation?' "'They are, still,' returned the gentleman.' I wish I could say that they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you had said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink, a means of warmth. We chose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. "'You wish to remain anonymous?' "'I wish to be left alone,' said Scrooge. "'Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. "'I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. "'I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. "'They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen.' Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labours with an improved opinion of himself. So this is Scrooge, a man with no sense of shame about the fact that he's happy to see others in prison or in the workhouse. And even as he sends his visitors away, people who are asking for charity, he has an improved opinion of himself for doing so. So we're starting to get an idea of what this character is like. And it's not because Dickens has told us who he is, rather that we see it through his actions in the form of this conversation. My second example of what Scrooge is like "'comes just after this in the same chapter. "'It's the end of the working day, "'and Scrooge dismisses his clerk, poor Bob Cratchit, for the evening. "'At length, the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. "'With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool "'and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, "'who instantly snuffed out his candle and put on his hat. "'You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose,' said Scrooge. "'If quite convenient, sir.' It's not convenient, said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used. I'll be bound. The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning up his great coat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. But here, be all the earlier next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat. This is enough to give us a clear indication of Scrooge's attitude. He resents having to stop work and to stop his clerk working. He's angry about giving Bob Cratchit the day off, and still having to pay for it, even though it's once a year. He has a great coat with buttons up to its chin. But his clerk has no coat. Poor Bob goes home cold. Not that Scrooge cares about that. So that is Scrooge at the start of the book. We see through these encounters and through his actions who he is. But then during the course of the book, he receives a visit from the ghost of his former partner and then three more ghosts and the experience shakes him to the core. He's transformed by it. Here's a later passage from the novel. It's Christmas Day and we see a transformed Scrooge. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. "'What's today?' cried Scrooge, calling down to a boy in Sunday clothes. "'Today?' replied the boy. "'Why, Christmas Day!' "'It's Christmas Day,' said Scrooge to himself. "'I haven't missed it. "'The spirits have done it all in one night. "'Hello, my fine fellow.' "Hallo," returned the boy. "'Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one? "'At the corner?' Scrooge inquired. "'I should hope I did,' replied the lad. "'An intelligent boy,' said Scrooge. "'A remarkable boy. "'Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? "'Not the little prize turkey. "'The big one.' "'What, the one as big as me?' returned the boy. "'What a delightful boy,' said Scrooge. "'It's a pleasure to talk to him. "'Yes, my buck.' "'It's hanging there now,' replied the boy. "'Is it?' said Scrooge. "'Go and buy it. "'I'm in earnest. "'Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here, "'that I may give them direction where to take it. "'Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. "'Come back with him in less than five minutes "'and I'll give you half a crown.' "'The boy was off like a shot. "'I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's,' whispered Scrooge, "'rubbing his hands and splitting with a laugh. "'He shan't know who sends it.' "'So now Scrooge seems like a different person.' He's pleasant and cordial with the boy. We see him thinking and talking, which is fine, but here's the clincher. His actions show he's a changed man. He buys a turkey for his poor clerk, Bob Cratchit, and his family. He even offers to give money to the boy for going and doing this errand for him. This is the man who begrudged his clerk a day off. Now he wants to buy a turkey for him and his family. We aren't told he's a changed man. We see it through his actions. And that has more of an impact than any amount of telling from the author. The same thing applies to villains in your work. In some ways, it's even more important for the antagonist to be seen as villainous through their actions. If your story, for example, says something like this, Fred Smiggins was a nasty, creepy old man who was unkind to animals and liked to follow people around just to upset them. Your reader has an abstract sense that Fred is not a nice person, but that's not enough. What they don't have is a real in-the-gut sense of how horrible he is. But if you describe in your story some of the terrible things Fred does to an abandoned kitten he finds, or if you show the reader how Fred sits at home late at night, making a plan to stalk your heroine around the city, that's when they really get a sense of who he is. If you tell your reader that Fred's a bad person, they will know it as a fact. If you show them Fred in action, they will not only know it, they will believe it and my second example illustrates this in the lion the witch and the wardrobe we know from the first time we hear about her that the white witch is a bad character we can see it through some of the things she says and the way she's talked about we only really get a sense of it when we see her actions especially when her nemesis the lion aslan is captured here's another abridged excerpt from the book at the point where aslan willingly gives himself up to the witch and her minions the fool she cried the fool has come bind him fast Aslan made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. "'Stop!' cried the witch. "'Let him first be shaved!' Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of scissors came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears, and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. "'Muzzle him!' said the witch and even now as they worked about his face putting on the muzzle one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands the witch bared her arms and began to whet her knife she stood by aslan's head her face was working and twitching with passion and now who has won fool did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor now i will kill you instead of him as our pact was And so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. So it's in her treatment of Aslan, in her actions, that we really see the character of the witch. No amount of the author telling you she's a bad person will have the same effect. And in my third example, we see how character attributes can be presented through character actions. This example is from The Lord of the Rings. We see Gandalf's courage and determination as he defends the fellowship from the Balrog. ''Over the bridge!'' cried Gandalf, recalling his strength. ''Fly! This is a foe beyond any of you. I must hold the narrow way. Fly!'' The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span. ''You cannot pass,'' he said. ''I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow!'' You cannot pass. The Balrog made no answer. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height and its wings were spread from wall to wall. From out of the shadow a red sword leapt, flaming, glandering, glittered, white in answer. There was a ringing crash and a stab of white fire. The wizard swayed on the bridge, stepped back a pace and then again stood still. You cannot pass, he said. With a bound, the Balrog leapt full upon the bridge, its whip whirled and hissed. At that moment Gandalf lifted his staff and crying aloud he smote the bridge before him. Right at the Balrog's feet it broke and the stone upon which it stood crashed into the gulf. With a terrible cry the Balrog fell forward and its shadow plunged down and vanished. But even as it fell it swung its whip and the thongs lashed and curled about the wizard's knees dragging him to the brink. He staggered and fell grasping vainly at the stone and slid into the abyss. Fly you fools he cried and was gone. From this passage we see that Gandalf is courageous, a powerful wizard and a warrior as well as a wizard. We can see hints of a deeper past. He is a servant of the Flame of Arnor, and he seems to have some knowledge of what the Balrog really is as well, calling it Flame of Uddin. All this we can see from the action. We aren't told it, and we don't need to be. And we can see that even as he is threatened with death through falling into the void, Gandalf's chief concern is for his friends and the urgency of their situation. Fly, you fools, he cries, and is gone. All this we deduce from Gandalf's actions, and actions in this passage bring us to an understanding of who he is so much more thoroughly than anything the author could have told us about his character. So in summary, when you're presenting your characters, do so through action. It could be a stinging and profound conversation. It could be through passion, conflict, life and death. It could be through profound evil or selfless courage and grace. But whatever it is, show us through the action. And as something to think about, I'd encourage you to reflect on the major characters in your current project. How can you show their personalities through action? What would you have them doing? Today, I have quoted from the following works. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which is in the public domain. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, which is published by HarperCollins. The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, which is also published by HarperCollins. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As ever, I'd encourage you to leave comments and constructive criticism. Go to goodreads.com and look up the Creative Writer's Toolbelt group. I'm on Twitter at Writer's Toolbelt. And you can also email me at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. My thanks as ever to the guys at Podcast Themes for providing the music. Thank you to you for listening. Till next time, good